Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And today we are speaking with Tony Keane, Head of Integrity and Security at the Australian Football League. Tony, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, John. Yeah, really well. Um, we appreciate the invitation to be here. That's all right. Happy to have you here. Now, Tony, perhaps you can start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and your journey to the AFL. Yeah, for sure. Look, I've been at the AFL now for approaching seven years. Um, so I've been the head of integrity and security the last sort of three or four years, but worked in uh, specifically integrity and security on their own sort of right at various stages. And yeah, before that, I spent roughly 13 or 14 years inside Victoria Police uh, in some of the various crime squads, um, investigating all sorts of things throughout Victoria, um, including the homicide squad. Fantastic. And so when you joined the AFL, um, one of the things that I know we have discussed in the past and that surprised me is that you came in as head of integrity, but there was no head of security at the time at the AFL. Can you tell me a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, look, going back sort of four or five years, um, security within sporting codes in general wasn't something that was uh, high on the, the list of um, departments that were resourced, I guess. And yeah, coming across into the AFL and with the policing background that I had, um, I very quickly identified that uh, that was an area that we needed to be more invested in. Um, and essentially, you know, we were very reliant on our stadiums to uh, hold all the plans and liaise with the police and, and the security fans and so forth. So it was a gap that I felt we needed to rectify and so we did that yeah four or five years ago by creating a security function inside the AFL which I headed up and built um, from the ground up uh, and then when it became sort of big enough it sort of merged into integrity and security and, and that's when I become the head of both. Right and so what does that head of security function now entail because if as you'd said before the the responsibility for planning and security of events and all the rest of it used to rest with the venues. What does that role now look like? Yeah, so it's really what I've tried to create is just a, a partnership and a relationship. So we now meet with the stadiums on a weekly basis. And we also meet with our law enforcement agencies right around the country, um, whether it be in Western Australia, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, Tasmania. We have great relationships now with all our policing um, friends and also the stadium. So essentially what we've created is just a group where we can come together and discuss um, the game that's coming up on that particular weekend and we can look at uh, previous games, we can analyse intelligence from previous games, look at any issues uh, and we can discuss what the security overlay should look like and that's both from a security um, personnel perspective, but also from a policing and resourcing perspective as well. So we've now created a seat at the table and the three agencies work really well together in mapping out uh, that upcoming game. Okay. And so obviously last year was a bit of an anomalous year and an interesting year in that we found that uh, AFL suddenly had to move interstate. Can you walk me through what that process looked like from the time that coronavirus started to break out to sort of, you know, the decisions around do we run the season, don't we run the season, 
And then what sorts of security challenges that kind of entailed? Yeah, look, um, there were many challenges throughout uh, 2020, but it was a, an exciting year and it was great to be a part of that. So um, it, was, it was very fluid. Um, you know, we started off, I think, in July. I packed up in Victoria and moved across to WA uh, to set up a, a high-performance centre there. Um, they later became referred to as hubs in the media, but um, high-performance centres were what we were calling them. Um, I thought I was heading across there for three weeks, uh, four at the most, uh, and eventually came home um, sort of in November that year. So uh, away for quite a quite a period of time. But that was just the nature of the season. It was it was like standing on sand. It was just moving constantly underneath you, and it, it yeah. wasn't a day by day scenario. It was literally an hour by hour scenario. So, so what was the nature of that high performance centre that you went to WA to set up? What was the purpose behind that? Essentially, what we were doing was working with the state to house uh, our players, our officials, and in some cases, uh, families of those people uh, in, a, in a secure environment where we could be guaranteed that uh, we wouldn't be bringing COVID in or were also being exposed to it as well. So essentially, we were creating a, a mini city inside a, a hotel or a high-performance centre that al- allowed the, uh, the clubs and, and players to get on with a job and get the season um, underway. Right. And so was there intent initially to maybe move the season to Western Australia? Yeah, look, it was it was quite fluid. Um, when we first went across to WA, um, it wasn't necessarily the whole season would move across there, but it was about incorporating the two WA clubs that we had based there. Um, as time went by, uh, the season obviously, as we all now, now know, it moved predominantly to Queensland and that meant for me um, establishing you know a whole heap of other high performance centres up there in Queensland that required security overlays, uh, risk assessments, working with the police, working with security firms um, in order to, to build a really strong and robust high performance centre that we, we knew would fulfil um, what we were seeking. Now walk me through that because my understanding is that whilst you were building these centres in Queensland, you were stuck in Western Australia? Yeah, look, I spent uh, roughly two months in Western Australia based there in the high-performance centre. So, yeah, certainly uh, there was some substantial time spent liaising and leaning into my network in Queensland to help get our our high-performance centres in Queensland up and off the ground. Uh, And I had some great help with that through um, John O'Neill and Procom Consulting, who, who helped us out with that job. They were extraordinary. Some great help from uh, some private security firms up there, but also the Queensland Police. They were they were fantastic. Um, and also WA Police, who were able to offer advice and guidance on the learnings that we'd already gathered from WA. Yep. Um, and even to the point where, you know, the camaraderie between all of these agencies and stakeholders was just tremendous. At one point there, I received a phone call from Victoria Police and Tony Wakefield and James Templeton from their state event planning unit that would normally have coverage of planning the AFL Grand Final at the MCG, contacted me and reached out to offer help for the Queensland Police in planning it at the Gabba. So it was that sort of camaraderie that just really enabled the season to to get underway and to actually conclude in the huge success that it was. Fantastic. Now, talk me through some of the security challenges because 
I, my understanding is you had roughly 15 of these high-performance centres scattered around Queensland at any one given time, and they kind of operated a little bit like, and correct me if I'm wrong, they kind of operated a little bit like quarantine hotels in that this is where the players, the families, the officials were all living, training, working, um, and I imagine if you let your guard down for even a second and coronavirus got into one of those hotels, that was it. The season was over. Yeah, look, in a, in a worst-case scenario, I guess that was always in the back of our mind. But, yeah, certainly um, the 15 or so high-performance centres up there relied on some really diligent uh, security personnel. Um, we had security leads and coordinators in place around uh, the state. Yeah, as you say, 2,500 players, officials and families living within those high-performance centres. Uh, it involved the guards being tested on a weekly basis. Um, the administration and making sure that uh, all that data was collated and accurate and up to date was really, really important. Trying to pull together the private security firms, people that we'd never worked with before, um, proved to be a challenge, but something that we were able to overcome quite quickly and build really good rapport. And a lot of that was also on the back of leaning into Queensland Police, who were fantastic and helping us with some advice and guidance in that space. But there yeah, are lots of things to think about up there when you're managing. 15, 15 high performance centres with about 2,500 people. Yeah, and so we've obviously seen that there have been some challenges around security with hotel quarantine in Victoria and other states, predominantly in Victoria, um, around, you know, people not doing what they're meant to be doing or whatever the allegations may be. How were you able to manage the security uh, remotely from interstate, obviously you said you had a lot of help from Queensland Police and other people, but what for you were the priorities around managing those centres and how, what did you do differently to ensure that we didn't get outbreaks or problems in those high-performance centres? Yeah, look, there's probably three really key points here and the first one was leadership and that for us started at the top from our CEO, our exec team and our AFL commission. They were instrumental in sort of setting the bar early and then creating a workforce underneath that was what we what we termed flexible and agile. And that really became our ethos all year. And that was to be disciplined, but at the same time, maintaining flexibility and agility. So that was the first key point. The second point was the relationship, and I've touched on that, leaning into law enforcement, leaning into stadiums all around the country, uh, and also our security providers around the country. And the third one was communication. Uh, and I think that's something that as a business, we did it really well and we had to. Um, it was an environment where, like I said before, the sand was constantly shifting on an hour by hour basis. So communicating was really important. Um, and one of the key things we did there was establish a very senior high level return to play team, uh, which I was a member of from a, a security and emergency management perspective. And, and that team would consult sort of on a daily basis, um, day and night for months, basically. So that team was critical in sort of creating a platform that allowed us to share information almost in like a cascading manner down through our own workforce and then also out to our key stakeholders. So I yeah. think leadership, relationships and communication were the three key points. And I know that you had mentioned to me in the past that you had designated leads at each of these uh high-performance centres. Can you tell me a little bit about that role and what those people were doing and how they reported to you? Yeah, so uh, at the lower end, we had obviously our contracted security companies 
uh, and then we'd have a lead sitting across the top within each high performance centre. So their role was to oversee the, the rotating workforce that was coming in and out because we're obviously working in shifts with the, the security personnel and that lead would then report through to a coordinator who was on the ground uh, and that was a member of Procom Consulting uh, in the early days up there in Queensland and they would report through to me, uh, particularly in those first two months while I was still based in WA. So yeah. It was almost like a, a framework we built sitting underneath me that we were able to communicate and, and share learning from each other. And were they responsible for checking things like making sure guards were wearing proper PPE, had been issued proper PPE, were undergoing regular testing? Um, you know, and, and how did you ensure things like uh, guards that were working on site weren't then necessarily going off and working as Uber drivers of an evening and increasing risk and introducing new risk and things like that? Yeah, great, great point. Um, totally, we ensured that they were tested and it was mandated that they weren't allowed to work in other areas where they potentially sort of cross-contaminate. So, yeah, all of those rules were in place as part of our protocols um, and security companies, whether it be Western Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, were required to um, sort of follow those protocols. So we had good guidelines in place and uh, it worked well. Right. And so for you, what was, in your mind, the sort of standout big security challenge that, that or were there a couple of major security challenges that jumped out from all of this and, and how did you deal with those? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously the global pandemic, um, I think the world suddenly needed the security industry in general like never before. Uh, the impact of COVID has been widespread and I think from professional development point of view, the security industry was really forced to move quite quickly to upskill themselves and show leadership. Um, so what we were seeing is security firms and personnel, you know, required to expand their skills and become more than just an individual standing at a point of entry, so to speak. Um, they needed to be multi-skilled. They needed to be good communicators. Um, understanding the value of intelligence driving the security overlay become really important. And I think also just not being tunnel vision during the pandemic to ensure that we weren't neglecting all our other threat types. And by that, I mean the threat of terrorism or malicious insider throughout the pandemic. So the job of a security person or guard or personnel really become multifaceted. And I think that was probably the big challenge is that right across the industry, the world suddenly needed the security industry and we needed to move quickly. Yeah. Is it fair to say that you don't think the 2020 AFL season would have been able to happen without private security? Yeah, totally, totally. They were instrumental in helping us manage each of the high-performance centres that we had. Um, you know, we, we owe a lot to the individuals on the ground that were, were working those 7 a.m. shifts right through to those sort of midnight shifts, and um, without them, the AFL season simply wouldn't have happened. So we, we owe them a lot. Yeah, and uh, how much, if any, did technology play in the role of securing all of this? Because I imagine if you're setting up 15 high-performance centres around Queensland, you've not only got to keep the players in and the families and the officials and make sure that they're safe, but you've got to try and keep people out. So was there much of a technical component involved in all of that? Yeah, look, we certainly used our our apps on our phone and what have you as far as doing our, our checks and conducting obviously our temperature checks and uploading all that data in through our app on a daily basis. So that was all managed. 
um, by an individual through our uh, return to play team. Um, and like I said earlier, that's why that team becomes really important in communicating out to the broader uh, network, whether it be stakeholders or our own personnel workforce. But yeah, certainly lots of data collected throughout the season. Yeah. And then the uh, the final decision, decision to hold the grand final in Queensland. What sort of changes did that require as far as security and planning and, and creating a new overlay for the event? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. Um, it was actually quite a smooth transition. Um, the team at the Gabba were, were fantastic and we've worked with uh, with Mark and Tom there for, for quite a while. Um, they're very familiar with holding AFL events. So it was really just a case of business as usual and that was the, the attitude that we approached it with um, to treat it as just another game um, with obviously some increased security presence um, on the concourse and around the precinct and what have you. But um, really professional team in there at the Gabba and we worked well with them along with Queensland Police who were instrumental in, in supporting us with intelligence and also resourcing um, right through to the local area command team that managed the event on the day. Yeah, okay. So obviously your role uh, as Head of Integrity and Security in enabling the 2020 season was crucial. Can I ask, as security uh, lead for the AFL, what level of access do you have directly to the CEO? Is he your, like, do you report to him directly? Do you go through someone else? And if you do report to him directly, how important is that sort of direct connection in enabling you to be able to do what you do? Yeah, look, I mean, I have a great relationship with our CEO. I don't report directly to him. I report to our general counsel, uh, Andrew Dillon. Yep. Um, but yeah, certainly in phone contact with both um, on any given day, uh, depending on what's happening. So yeah, great relationship there with the, the AFL. And what level of importance does the CEO Gill place on security? Does he understand the need for it, the relevance for it? Is that something that's very cognizant in his mind? Absolutely. Um, security for Gill is one of his top three priorities. Um, has been for a long time now and, and hence that's why we established the entire security function that we did going back in sort of 2016 and and since then we, we now have coverage and as I spoke earlier about having a seat at the table with law enforcement and our stadiums and our security providers we now have coverage and security overlays across all of our AFL games whether they be AFL men's elite competition AFL women's elite competition pre-season competition uh, we have a security presence, we have operation orders, we have plans in place. Um, so certainly it's at absolutely the forefront of not only Gill's mind, but the commission and also the executive team. Right. And I suppose that makes your job a fair bit easier if you're working with senior leadership who understand the importance and the need for what you do and, and the skills that you bring to the table. You're not constantly trying to sell it to them. They uh, They understand and know why you're doing it. Yeah, they do. And it, it, it is really reassuring to have that backing from them um, and and just knowing that I've always got that support and need be, I need anything, then certainly um, there's no hesitation in providing. So yeah. very, very lucky at the AFL. And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that security in a lot of the sporting codes hadn't necessarily really sort of found its footing yet and become its own department. So I can only assume that there are still other major sporting codes out there that don't necessarily have a role like yours. What advice would you offer to those sporting codes that are still thinking about this or haven't yet started thinking about it? 
Yeah, look, it's a difficult one. I, I think um, we would find that they've all started thinking about it. It's just whether they've got the ability to resource it uh, and upskill potentially uh, with internal. Um, you know, it, it's certainly an area that we now need to move on. Um, and that's been the case for a number of years now. COVID's been in 2020, but the threat of terrorism has also been there for a number of years. And, you know, it's really important that um, these agencies, not only sporting codes, uh, are engaged, particularly with their local law enforcement agencies. And there are lots of working groups that those sports can be a part of in order to help upskill themselves and also to have access to greater intelligence around what's happening within those spaces. So um, the platforms are out there. Uh, it's not necessarily a case of having to have resources, but certainly um, relationships is the key. Yeah. Um, being able to pick up the phone to uh, the guys at the Gabba or you know, at Marvel Stadium or the Adelaide Oval or what have you, uh, really, really, really important is to maintain those relationships. Yeah. And I imagine from a security point of view, it's not just about all about terrorism either. I mean, we're not quite at the uh, the UK Premier League standards yet with rivalry between clubs, but you know, I imagine the the rivalry that we do have between clubs here in Australia also brings an added element when teams are playing, depending on who's playing and where they're playing and all the rest of it. That must bring some complexity and challenges to the equation. Yeah, look, it does. I think I actually think we're quite lucky here in Australia with respect to that. The, the behaviour of our our fans is, is really. Um, it's really quite good uh, in comparison to some of our overseas uh, sporting codes and what have you, as, as you indicated. So, yeah, certainly there's there are other areas that we need to look at and our precinct and our concourse and, and what's happening inside the bowl, so to speak, uh, all the sorts of things that we need to be looking at as, as sporting codes. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic chatting to you today. It's been a, a real pleasure. It, tell me, season 2021, at the moment, are we looking at it going ahead as per normal? We're hoping so. We're certainly hoping so. And um, I think if we take the attitude that we did in 2020, we'll be able to achieve it. Fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know uh, more about Aziel or listen to the other podcasts in the Insider series, you can find them at Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, the Apple Store, all the fantastic places. It's been a pleasure talking to Tony today, and we look forward to catching you in the next podcast. Good on you, John. Thank you. Thank you.